Welcome back to Ask the Compound. You have questions, we have answers, we have experts. With me and Duncan, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com is the email. Today's show is sponsored by our friends at Bird Dogs. Duncan, have a family trip planned for tomorrow. We're going up to beautiful Mackinac Island, kind of an annual tradition for us now. Uh, you have to take a ferry to the island, and there's no cars on the island. Sounds right? nice. It's only horse and carriage, but there's also a lot of bikes. You bike around. It, it's pretty beautiful. You go all the way around the outside of the island. But I have to figure out what I'm wearing, right? I'm checking the weather. And so I'm packing last night, and guess what I packed? All bird dogs for my lower half. Bird dog shorts. Can't go wrong. Bird dog pants. And because I'm thinking I'm going to be on a bike, I'm going to be a little active. But then I also have to dress nice because my mother's birthday is this weekend, so we're going out to a nice dinner. So I have the nice seersucker ones, right? And, of course, when I'm on the bike, I don't want to be uncomfortable and have the George Costanza with the wallet that I'm sitting on. So the wallet's on the side. So Bird Dogs has me hooked up. I have a full suitcase full of them. I'm ready to go to be biking, walking, versatile, but stylish, right? It's awesome. So if you go to birddogs.com slash ATC for Ask the Compound, obviously, get yourself one of these free tumblers, Bird Dog tumblers, right? Pretty nice. You know what I did in my Bird Dogs the other day? Some shorts. Went for a What's run. That? They were great. I, I, I've yeah. been working out of them this summer, too. It is, it's nice. It's breathable. It's stretchy, right? It's yeah. very nice. Birddogs.com slash ATC. All right. A lot of questions today. Let's do it. Okay. So first up, we have the following. Can you guys speak to if you think the market is skewed towards benefiting the large players more than the small players, if not being downright rigged against the small players? Get this question a lot. So that they're... Pull it up here. There's a movie coming out this fall about the GameStop saga. Seems a little, seems like it happened pretty quick. They pulled it together called Dumb Money. I, I watched the trailer. It actually looks pretty good. Yeah, I, I thought think. it looked good. Yeah. So, and they have like a pretty good cast. So, Seth Rogen plays Gabe Plotkin, the guy who shorted GameStop. It's kind of funny. In the past, he definitely would have been on the other side of this, but now he he's playing the man. Paul Dano is Roaring Kitty. Remember that guy, the YouTube guy who bought GameStop? Pete Davidson is his brother. I don't know if he actually had a brother. They made it up for the movie. Shailene Woodley is his wife. Nick Offerman is playing Ken Griffin, which I never really would have thought. But based on the trailer, the, the premise here is the stock market is rigged against the little guy and in favor of the big whales, like hedge fund managers like Ken Griffin and Steve Cohen and Gabe Plotkin. Vincent D'Onofrio as, as Steve Cohen. That was interesting, too. Uh, but this is the story, a heartwarming tale about the little guy finally taking down the big guy, right? David beat Goliath. And I'm sure the movie would be fine, if not a little bit embellished, because it's the same guy who wrote the movie the, or the book that The Social Network was based on. It's called The Accidental Millionaires, that Ben Mesrich guy. Pretty good, pretty good books, actually. They're a little embellished. So the problem is Goliath is still doing pretty well these days. I saw the following headline just last month on CNBC. Michael Jordan is selling his stake in the Charlotte Hornets. He's probably going to bet it all on the golf course and blackjack tables. I think he spent $275 million for it, and he made $3 billion or something. So I look at in the in the fine print down there, and it, wait, who's buying his stake from him? Gabe Plotkin <laughs> is poised to become a majority owner pending league approval. So the guy who got taken down by the GameStop Reddit people is literally going to be an NBA owner. He's probably still worth hundreds of millions or maybe a billion dollars. They did force him into shutting his hedge fund down, but it, it does feel like one of those, oh, wait, so the guy lost a bunch of money on GameStop, but he got to keep all the fees that he already made from his 2-20 and 20 hedge fund, and they didn't get clawed back. So it does feel a little bit like 
heads I win, tails you lose type of situation. Even right. though in this situation, the little guy won, the big guy still won. They're, they're fine. Right. I, I, I'm not sure that's going to make it into the movie. That probably wouldn't help with the story. But it does kind of feel like the, the market is stacked against little guys in some ways. So I, there, there are some ways it is, right? So you're never going to, as a little guy, and I'm using this as just regular, normal, and I'm a little guy too, right? Right. Uh, literally I'm definitely a little guy. And I'm a much smaller guy after my 25%. <laughs> loss in early today. Tough, tough break for you, Duncan. You're in a bull market too. So the thing, the things of being a little, you're never going to get like the sweetheart deals like Warren Buffett got in the financial crisis with like the Goldman Sachs and Bank of America deals. You're not going to be able to invest in the best hedge funds or venture capital deals or private equity deals. You're not going to be able to get two and 20 and, and keep that 20, even if you lose half of your investors' money. If you try to take on Ken Griffin in the high-frequency trading, no matter wh- which way your position goes, you could lose 25% notely, or you could make 25%. Ken Griffin's probably going to make money either way. Um, so in that sense, it does feel like the markets are stacked against the We couldn't even buy the to... Constitution, you know? He had to come no, in and sweep true. in and, and take that, buy that. I forgot about he that. He couldn't yeah. let the so, little so guys have one feel, win. It feels like the big guys win all the time. But in other ways, the individual investor has all sorts of advantages over Wall Street, right? You get to invest in index funds if you want to with low fees that basically guarantees that you're going to outperform 75 to 90% of professional investors in the stock market. You can ignore short-term performance numbers if you want. When I worked in the endowment industry, these, these funds, foundations and endowments, were set up in most cases in perpetuity. They wanted to last forever and leave a legacy. So their, their time horizons were measured in multiples of decades, yet they obsessed over monthly and quarterly performance numbers, right? As an individual investor, you don't have to have some made-up benchmark that you have to try to beat every month. You, your only benchmark that matters is, are you on track to achieving your financial goals, right? There's no investment committee meetings, com- committees to answer to. There's no outside investors that are breathing down your neck because you underperformed for a quarter or two. There's no alumni or donors that are forcing you to make investments in managers that they roomed with in college because they want to you know, keep things on the up and up. So you can set it and forget it and ignore macro predictions and stop looking at your statements if you want to, right? Professional big guys cannot do that. So I think it, probably the biggest advantage you have is just keeping a long time horizon. So throw up my, I use this in some, some of my presentations, my time horizon. On a daily basis, the market is up a little bit more than it's down. 56% of all days, the stock market is up 44%, it's down. But if you extend your time horizon 1, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, the probability of seeing a gain goes up. And I love this chart because it shows that like Wall Street wants to play in the short-term sandbox. You get, have the ability to play in the long-term sandbox. Right. So I just I think that's your advantage as the little guy in the markets. If you try to play the short term game of Wall Street, unless you get lucky, let's be honest, the Roaring Kitty guy got lucky. He made a great pitch on this stock, but he got lucky. Uh, throw up the, the well, chart that's here. the game thing stop. about Roaring Kitty I'm, that I actually always found interesting is if you look, he was much more nuanced, like his initial reason that he was buying the stock was like based on fundamentals and things that he yeah, was so looking wasn't at. A he did a bunch thing. of research. He wasn't just like I randomly picked a company, you know. The funny, so throw up the chart. The funny thing is, since pre-pandemic days, even though it's down 75% from the highs of a meme stock mania, it's still up like 1,400% since the start of the pandemic. So it's still... Not I, bad. I, I, think, I think he took a bunch of chips off the table. I hope he did. So anyways, in some ways, like the market's always going to seem unfair and biased towards billionaires who seemingly win no matter what. But I think that's, that's just certain areas of life that's always going to happen. But in other ways, I really do think that the little investor has the upper hand inter- because you have the ability to invest in strategies and not pay two and twenty, and and have be more tax efficient and not trade short term all the time if you don't want to. 
So I, I, I still think that you have an upper hand if you're willing and able to use it. If you know, if you try to play the short-term game, you're probably go, they're probably going to beat you either through taking your fees or through taxes or some other way. But over the long term, if you're willing and able to ha- play the long game, that's where Wall Street has a hard time sticking with that type of strategy. Right. I feel like it's also gotten fair for the little guy with um, with free trading, right? I mean, yes. imagine back in the day, like I remember when I was first buying stocks back in college, I was paying like $8 to buy like one share of Microsoft or something. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's stupid. Buy, that was a fractional huge shares now. Yeah, right, yeah. You can it, you can put anything you want in the market now. It's much The easier. barriers to entry are way smaller now than they were, would have been in the past. So in that way, it's it's not really stacked. I, I think things have gotten appreciably better for the individual investor over the last 20 years than they have for the professional investor. That's for sure. Right. And also when, when a retail person goes up 80% on their small account, they're not like buying a Ferrari, you know what I mean? But like Ken Griffin can buy a Ferrari and with, you know, his winnings. And so I think it's more like ostentatious and show. I think that's what people hate is they just see these people that they see as like Wall Street succeeding and, you know, doing really well. And yes. even if they do well, it's, it's not going to compare, right? Because the scale is so different. Yes, which unfortunately is probably always going to be the case. Right. Right. Let's do another one. Okay. Up next, we have a question from George. How do you know? Great name. Yeah. <laughs> It's my son's name. Uh, oh, right. And and uh, my favorite beetle. Okay. Uh, how do you know when U.S. government bonds are cheap? I bought some during the U.S. debt ceiling, ceiling brinksmanship or brinkmanship. I haven't heard that word. Uh, thinking it was a good time to buy when others were fearful, but they have gone down more. Also, I noticed on Fred that from 1871 to 1932, U.S. stocks were flat. Same with the German market from 1872 to 1913, and of course Japan since 1990. I think I've been lucky but foolish the last 41 years being 100% stocks. Thoughts? This is a loaded question. A lot to go on here. A lot to unpack here as I say on podcasts. Yeah, I feel like he's subtweeting is- you a little bit because you've you've said a lot about long-term horizons and things you know being good, but he's showing us a 41 and 61-year horizon. That you don't think I you work. don't think I came prepared here, Duncan? Come on. <laughs> So the first one is fairly simple. Like, no one knows except at the extremes. So I wrote a post in, like, March 2020 saying, like, I was way more worried about bonds than stocks. But that was pretty easy because rates were, like, 0 to 1% for for treasuries. Like, that, that was pretty simple, right? I didn't know how it was going to play out, but you knew that, like, things in bonds, the, the outcomes weren't going to be that great, right? Look at that. Timestamp. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that they were going to go from 0% to 5% in a year, but it, you knew it was unhealthy. I guess my problem with this question is that you're trying to play the bond market in the short term, and bond market, like, it's it's way easier to predict the bond market in the long term because you take your starting yield, especially in government bonds, and, you know, that'll get you, like, something like 95% of the way there for long-term returns, call it 5, 7, 10 years. But in the short run, you're dealing with changes in interest rates and inflation and GDP growth and Fed policy and expectations and all this stuff. Unless you're a hedge fund manager, I would not think of bonds being cheap or expensive, especially if you're buying them for the yields now where you're getting 5 or 6% or whatever it is. I wouldn't worry much about the short-term fluctuations because the yield is going to win out over the long term. I think bonds are for patient people. Bonds are not for, like, are they cheap or expensive? I'm going to be greedy even though there's a fearful or whatever. Like that, that doesn't work as well in the bond market as it does in the stock market. For the second question... I will summarize what he said here in a few short words. Stocks are risky, right? I'm not surprised at all that U.S. stocks went nowhere from whatever, 1871 to 1932, because the year ending 1932, the stock market had fallen 85% from the highs in, 20, in 1929, right? That, that's pretty, that, it had to be down after that, right? 
Uh, and there's plenty of periods where the U.S. stock market has gone nowhere. We talked about the lost decade a couple weeks ago, but from the start of 1998 through February of 2009, the S&P 500 had a total return with dividends invested of negative 9%. So that's like 11 years and change where stocks went nowhere. All your returns back to 1998 were gone, right? That's pretty recent. The total return for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index since the start of 2008 through, uh, through this year is up just 28%. Essentially a lost decade and a half. S&P is up 330% by comparison, just so you know. So you don't earn the risk premium without the risk. Right? I do want to mention something about the Japan situation because it always irks me. Every time I post a stat about buy and hold or stocks for the long run, someone always shows up looking like Leonardo DiCaprio like this, scratching their chin, saying, now show Japan. I got you. I'm so clever. Right? I want to debunk this. MSCI Japan Index, 1990 to today, is up 40% in total, 1% per year. So three decades and change where you lost out to T-bills. I think T-bills were up 2.5% per year over that time. So Japanese stock investors underperformed over three decades, and people say, see, stocks for long, and ha, ha, ha. Uh, but is it a myth, right? These are the total returns from 1970 to 1989 for the MSCI Japan Index. 6,000% total returns, 22.9% annual returns for two decades. $10,000 in 1970 invested in Japanese stocks is worth $616,000 by 1989. Easily, the I think the biggest financial asset bubble in history. Now, what if we mash these two together? Do you have those numbers that? in yen, though? Can we have those in yen? No, I'm just kidding. I, I did not do the the uh, currency calculation. Sorry, I'm pr- pretending we're hedged here. If we go from 1970 to today, we're talking an 8,600% total return, or 8.7% per year. Guess what? Stocks for the long run in Japan worked. You just had to go really long, right? And the the reason that stocks have, that stock returns have been so awful there from 1990 is because they were so unbelievable. And you pulled forward all those returns and the PE ratio got to 150 or whatever it was, or 100, and the bubble just ate up all the future returns. And that, so you had this period of 30 years where you had to work off that bubble. The long, long returns are still pretty darn good, almost 9% per year in Japan, right? Stocks for the long run worked there. It just depended on when you started. Now back to the question at hand. If you've been investing for 40 years, as George said, and portfolio has been 100% in stocks, He's done pretty well for himself, right? In the 40 years leading up to 2022, this doesn't even include this year where we've had a snapback. The S&P 500 was up 11.1% per year. MSCI World XUS was up 9% per year. So whether it was lucky or foolish or whatever for keeping all your money in stocks, at this point, you probably won the game and it makes sense to diversify your portfolio. That could be as simple as holding some cash, maybe some short-term bonds, just to see you through a few years worth of spending. You could obviously hold some other asset classes or strategy. But the whole point is you've, you've picked out these periods where you see the stock market can be very risky. And I'm not here to pretend that I know if or when that's going to happen again, but the whole point of diversification, especially when you're retired, is to avoid bad things happening at the worst possible moment. And history has shown that bad things can and will happen in the stock market on occasion. That's why you diversify and hold some other, tor- some other sort of asset class or something to see you through if you happen to be unlucky enough to live through one of those periods. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and like they point out, you know, the market was all over the place throughout that time. So that was a very, very cherry-picked, as you guys say, but fair, fair for them to point out. But, you know, yeah, it, it all depends, it right, on when when you would have been retiring, when you would have been withdrawing. And, yeah, scary still to think about. But, yeah, that's yeah. why that's why you diversify, right? Give a shout-out to Duncan's mom in the chat again. Pam, <laughs> welcome. Yep, hey, and mom. all the other regulars, we we always appreciate it. Yep. She, everyone likes your new hat today, Duncan. I didn't know we had new uh, more new hats. This is this is a one of one. This it didn't come out quite how we were wanting. So oh so, okay, yeah. yeah. 
So you're kind of like the team that lost in the NBA Finals and they send the shirts to Africa. <laughs> right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do have a new TCAF hat, though. It's it's a black hat with the uh, with the full color um, stitching. So that's the one you can you can actually pick up. All right. Next okay, one. next one. I'm gonna omit the name here just because of the nature of the question, uh, but but uh, we've we've gotten questions from him before, so thanks for writing in again. I'm 33 years old and have accumulated one million dollars of spy. I can live a modest life on forty thousand dollars a year here in Lithuania. I've almost paid off my mortgage and have no other debt. Thinking about the four percent rule, can I retire? I'm not saying I will, but is this an option? I'm impressed. This is. The I was just asking myself day, this question the other day. You know, I was just the, wondering. So a million dollars in the S and P 500 ETF. Uh, we don't know what else they have, but th- this is impressive. So I could run all the numbers on the four percent rule that you want, and I have. If you want to search four percent rule on my blog, you can. I've written about it a number of times, but I think this idea goes beyond like the idea of uh, of investing. Obviously, the, the returns and stuff are going to be important, but I think a lot of it is also the financial planning aspect of retiring early. And like, there's a lot more boxes you have to check off if you're going to retire early. At, at that age, at 40 than, than otherwise. So so let's bring a financial advisor into the chat here. Nick Sapienza, who is an excellent financial advisor for us at hey, Ritholtz, representing hey, Bayou down in Louisiana for us. Yep. Nick, th- uh, there's obviously all sorts of different things you have to think through when you retire, but I think the, the calculus is a lot different if you're going from age 60, 65, 70 versus age 40. Right. So, so what are some of the other? If you're a financial advisor and someone sits sits you down and says, "I here's the pile of money I have. Here's kind of how much I spend," and it, it just so happens that that this person can live on the four percent out of a million dollars. Uh, what what are your what are your thought process when you're having the conversation with someone where they basically say, "Am I going to be okay if I do this? If I take this leap, what do you think? Can I do it?" Yeah. There's. I mean, there's. I'm going to go. I'm going to go through the trade offs first. And and some of the things that he may might not be thinking about. But first, I just want to start off with some context about the four percent rule, and it'll kind of lead into this. So it kind of starts off with a story. The four percent rule is an assumed withdrawal rate that should survive like the worst possible thirty-year period of market conditions. I think that's what a lot of people don't realize when they the first study was done to show like what's the floor here, not the average situation, but the four percent was used as. Like this would allow you to see through the 1930s or whatever, whatever the worst possible, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. That, that's what it can see you through. Yeah, exactly. The example that Kitsis uses, so I, I go to basically Kitsis for a lot of research on the 4% rule or the 3.5% rule, the 3% rule, which will kind of tie into this. But if you think about that, and I don't whether or not you want to trust the data from this time period, you could say the world is different. But he, he uses the 1890s as an example, as a starting point. In that 30-year period, we had, you know, there's a lot of differences in the world today, but maybe human nature is a constant. There were two financial panics, a severe depression, um, the assassination of a president, the Spanish flu, the entirety of World War I. And at the the same time, we had no central bank. We were still backed by the gold standard. So less stability, uh, more volatility, more bank runs. Um, You can read more from Jamie Catherwood on that. It's a pretty fascinating topic. But regardless, the 4% rule still worked in the most severe economic and, and financial times. Um, the average rate of return on that time period was actually like 4.7%. So yes, the technically 4.7 versus four, the rule will still work, but there's an extremely high possibility for failure. And when you go more into the data, like for in this guy's case, he's 33 years old. He has an extremely long runway. Um, as Paul Zotner likes to say, 
more people die on the way down from Everest than on the way up. And, and I think he stole that from into thin air, but the same is true. Like he's got one skill set for accumulation and it's a different skill set for decumulation, especially when it comes to how diversified his portfolio is. So what matters above- but The funny be- thing too that I like about this example is yeah. I've done examples on my website where I, I talk about if you had a million dollars in the stock market, would it work? And most people don't actually have that. This person actually does yeah. literally have a million dollars in the S&P 500. So the He's diversification the example. piece- Yeah, the, the diversification piece obviously kind of worries me here that there, maybe you, you want to have some more diversification. But the other piece is if you try at 40, the 4% rule is looking at like 30-year time periods, right? Yeah. You may have to let this last, you know, 50, 60, 70 years potentially. So I think that's that's what we have to think about is the Just time imagine if they were well. leveraged. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, so to use a more relevant or more recent example, you can look at dot-com. Like if you retired at the peak of the market in 2000, which is everyone's greatest fear, right? Um, you would have, in his case, you would have run out of money following the 4% rule in I think like 15 years. So- um, mistakes compound, right? There's no, there's the savings spigot is turned off. There's no additional shot. There's no extra time to recoup. It's, it's, he's basically effectively like in 2000, 2003, he might've even doubled his withdrawal rate. So having hundred percent right, of your money. If, yeah, if, if you're selling when stocks are crashing and you're keeping your amount of spending just as high, right. you're right. You, you could easily spend all your money. I think that that's the biggest thing here is that this is why I think the financial planning aspect is so important because you have to be very flexible, I think. And so yeah. if, 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 you, if it's a really bad year or a bad stretch in the markets, you may have to, to rein it in a little bit and, and dial down your spending. And maybe when things are up and you have a great bull market, then you can, can go back a little bit. That's hard for people to do, I'm sure, though, is, is yeah. have volatility in their spending just like in the markets. And look, people will make adjustments, but to cut to the chase, like which is to the point that you're getting at, the earlier you retire, the lower that withdrawal rate needs to be just to give you more flexibility. So in his case, like he's really towing the line. A million dollars, 4% rule, can live on $40,000 a year, but we're not accounting for taxes. I don't know if Lithuania, I think they have like some sort of social security system um, in place or maybe some sort of pension benefit, or maybe it's just for, for elder care and you're below the poverty level. Not a person not nailed down on that. But the bottom line is like he has such an extremely long runway. There's two things, and Kitsis highlights this pretty well. Like there's a maybe a 10% chance that he retires with and he's not prepared and he doesn't make any adjustments and he retires into a secular bear market. Okay. And his sequence of returns, like the order in which he got that bear market, it's not a matter of if he's going to experience a bear market. It's just a matter of when or a period right. of like flat returns or sideways markets. It's when. And if he, if he front loads that, that's an extreme disadvantage for him. So he has to make adjustments. So the, the key takeaway from, and to answer this question is that he needs to start off with possibly, like he can do it. It's not a matter of if he can, it's a matter of, if, of how. Start off with like a 3% withdrawal rate, have a higher cash buffer, but also part-time work. Like I like the idea. I'm not big on the idea of fire, lean fire, fat fire, but coast fire is kind of a new one. And that's, that's where you would basically- I've never heard of this. What does that mean? So you retire, you, you have a job that you don't necessarily like. You're not going to do it forever. It's, not, you know, it's just a means to an end. You retire early, but then you go and you like start a vegetable garden, sell it at a farmer's Kinda market. Kind of like how all the fire people income. just start a blog and live off the blog. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, the other thing is this person has accumulated a million dollars in 33, at 33. And if they're talking about retiring at 40, they still have some time to save and invest and maybe grow that nest egg a little larger as well. I think yeah. that, so they, they obviously have very good financial habits. I, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. Did, did you guys want this Kitsi's chart? I didn't hear it referenced. Yeah. Oh, specifically. Yes. Yeah. yeah, chart yeah, on. This, there we go. Yeah. Um, 
growth of a million dollars in retirement. So this is breaking down like the, the fact that he has a, a 10% chance of running out of money. And this is over a 45 year or I'm sorry, 50 year time horizon. So I think he's uh, even a little further out, but um, a 10% chance that he runs out of money, but there's an equal uh, chance that he ends up with 9.3 times what he started with. So he ends up with $9.3. And so you have to manage that upside risk too of all this money unspent and, and kind of towing it too close to the line. So in his case, that dynamic withdrawal strategy is a fancy way to say that you just make adjustments every year or maybe even every quarter. If the markets are up, you can maybe spend a little bit more or save a little bit more, put a little extra you know, pay in the barn. If markets are down, you cut back and ideally you cut back permanently. I don't like the psychology behind that of like kind of your lifestyle ebbs and flows with the market. Um, but that seems to be a reasonable adjustment to make. An alternative that I've done with some clients as well is like, you look at the balance. This is a guardrail strategy. So you look at the balance at the end of the year, beginning of the year, what can we spend? What's sort of the ceiling and the floor? Like, so we end yeah. up with a range rather than a hard and set 4% rule. Like 4% is just the starting point. It's good that he knows about it, but there's his, his situation is going to be much more nuanced than that. I like it. It's kind of like how way, Buffett gets a different breakfast sandwich, depending on what the market's doing that day. Right. It's, that's the exact analogy that I use. Yeah, exactly. The Buffett, right. the Buffett withdrawal strategy. All right, next question. Okay, up next, we have a question from Jacob. The worst kept secret in my industry at the moment is that the private equity-owned tech company I work at is about to be sold. Rather than granting RSUs or ISO or NSOs, like many companies, my company grants an instrument called Profit Interest, PIUs. I'm granted these at a basis of $0, and I understand there's some tax advantage to this particular type of grant upon sale with some or all units being taxed at the long-term capital gains rate. However, I find research on the internet to be very unclear because they just aren't very common. Can you help a confused tech worker understand his tax implications this year? Right. Ever, the, the chat right now is going nuts where people coming Never with different, heard names half for, of this stuff. different names for fire. So, um, <laughs> oh my God. Anyways, all right. I've got to be honest here. I've never heard of the PIUs before either. Obviously, the cost basis of zero sounds appealing to me, but uh, and this person thinks that this company is about to be sold. So, they're, I'm sure they're starting to count these as well. So, what, what are we dealing with here? So, um, this is an interesting thing. We have a, we have a client right now that we were just working through this with, uh, profits, interest units. So it's common in like RIAs, law firms, REITs, in this case, an up REIT. So imagine that you own a real estate portfolio and that rather than selling it and realizing taxes, you can exchange it for units in the company in this capital account that has a zero balance. So it's effectively worth $0 and you can defer taxes or get creative with your tax situation there. In another way, it's a way to turn what would normally be compensation. Like say that you make $500,000, you're a highly compensated executive at a publicly traded company, a REIT, for example, and 200 of that is in the form of PIUs. There's some risk associated with that, but you can effectively turn that compensation into capital gains. So that's the advantage. And it follows under the carry, carried interest rule because you own an interest in the future appreciation, potential appreciation of the partnership. So there's See, other this is why the big guy always wins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. They can sell their por real estate portfolio to an upread and uh, and and also, you know, their step up in basis. And all so that sounds so so you're you're going to capital gains taxes as opposed to income tax. So that sounds like a pretty good deal then, obviously. It's a pretty sweet deal if all goes well, if you hit the performance metrics or time metrics and, and so on and so forth. So uh, but it is being scrutinized or it has been, at least it was under the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, I guess we'll see where that ends up. Um, but so you own these units with a zero dollar balance. 
and then whatever that appreciates to. And it can be exchanged for cash or stock. In his case, though, he's wondering if the business gets sold this year, what happens to my PIUs? And you're not finding it on Google because you're looking in the wrong place. Where you need to be looking is your plan document. You can probably download this from or get this from HR, for example. Just open it up, search acquisition and see what that document spells out. If it's not there, it might be in the other documents from the sale of the business or potential sale. So I would talk to people there and see how that's going to transpire because the worst case scenario is that your PIUs are forfeited because of that acquisition. Um, best be case scenario, yeah, that would, that would kind of suck. I mean, he didn't pay anything for them though. And hopefully True. he filed an 83B to kind of mitigate some of these risks of forfeiture and like he started the clock uh, early. But and, and sometimes you're forced to file the 83B. But in his case, worst case, forfeiture. Um, other cases, which would probably, I, I would hope would be the situation was that you get to exchange them for either more PIUs, but potentially that might restart the clock, um, or you get, uh, you get to exchange it for stock. And then how that's taxed is depending on how that all goes through, if it's going to be a capital asset or if it's going to be income. You might want to talk to an expert here. This yeah, you want to download this document and send it over to your CPA and say, help me right. interpret this because, yeah, there's a lot of jargon in there. For, for our younger and uh, new investors, can you just briefly explain why a company would issue these? What, what's the idea behind these? Um, with PIUs, so they, you, don't have to, you don't have to come out of pocket for them. They're, they're granted to you. It's kind of like a stock appreciation, right? Um, they're granted to you. At zero dollars, you can file an 83B and pay zero tax. You just pay postage to send it in through certified mail, right? And then after three years, and it has to be three years instead of two, after three years, you can sell at a capital gains rate. And it's based on essentially, I think, like the spread, right? So whatever that capital account balance is, if it's stock, if it's dividends, income, or just appreciation and growth. So it ties into performance. So if a company is so giving you an deferred capital, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's another form of conversation that can help you defer some taxes and something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, especially if you're recruiting somebody from you know uh, Zillow to come over and you you work for a REIT and you, you say you know we'll pay you know 40 percent of your compensation in the form of PIUs and uh, and it'll be taxed at capital gains. Gotcha. This is like Gabe Plotkin paying fifteen percent carried interest on his twenty percent performance fees. Yeah, can Gabe use these to buy the Hornets? I, I'm just trying to understand yes. this. Yes, pretty sweet deal, unless you work for maybe Oatly. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, okay. sorry. Yeah. All right, there we Twist go. in the knife. All right, last question. Okay, uh, last but not least, we have a question from Colin. My wife and I bought, uh, bought our home in 2020 and walked in a low fixed 30-year mortgage for first-time home buyers. Uh, we've been paying down the mortgage at a rate where it would be off the books in 20 years, so we'd be mortgage-free at 45. With lower returns in traditional markets expected, does this make sense? Or does it make more sense to pivot and invest that additional amount in our retirement accounts? We've been fortunate enough to max out our Roths and HSAs, but haven't reached the max on our 401k contributions. We don't view our home as an investment, but we do view our time as one. Oh, I like that last line there. That's pretty good. Yeah. So low rate mortgage, they want to know if they're, they're thinking lower expected returns in the stock market going forward because of valuations. I don't know what the stock market returns are going to be in the future, nor does anyone else. I can give you educated guess based on current valuations and dividend yields and historical earnings growth, but the people who were, who were doing those calculations in the 2010s were wildly off on what the returns would be. So 
Nick, I think one of the most important jobs for a financial advisor is setting expectations for future returns, especially when thinking through something like this, because you have not only the hurdle rate potential where you're saying, well, you probably have a three or 4% mortgage, so it's a pretty low hurdle rate to get over. And a house is illiquid, obviously. But there, there's also the idea of setting expectations for like, we have to plan about this without knowing what the future returns are going to be. So how do you handle this when, when dealing with clients in terms of setting expectations of you want it to be reasonable, but we, we don't know what they're going to be for sure? Yeah, um, I like to just be really clear and and about like what you could potentially see. So kind of stemming from the first question of like there were these periods in the market where you had flat or negative returns, right? Like that very well could happen. Um, but what it comes down to is that the best advice is going to be the right advice for your plan and for long term. It's not always going to look great over the short term. So we could say, you know, best thing for you to do in this scenario is to not pay down that mortgage at 3% to invest because we think long term in an 80-20 portfolio so, you know, let's say 7% is your average. That's a pretty good spread. And I'll take that all day. Plus I've got the flexibility. It's not a liquid. And especially in, in this guy's case um, or girl's case, they're what, 28 years old, maybe at this point, they started the mortgage three years ago and it'll be paid. It could be paid off in 20 years. I would be leaning more towards that, especially if valuations are lower, returns are lackluster. It's a land grab. I'm going to accumulate as many, you know, shares of VTI or whatever you choose to invest in over that time period, but setting that expectations to say, Hey, there could be an extended period where this is going to look like a really bad decision, but sticking with it long-term, it'll even itself out. And then the, the, the growth years that follow will offset, you know, the, well, the other thing is, is that if they, years. sure, they want to be out of their house at 45 and, and maybe retire early or something, but they can't touch the tax deferred money anyway. So I think at that point you, you want to, if we have yeah. a bad period for them in their t- late twenties, that's a good thing for them. They're picking up shares at a lower price. So if they think returns are going to be lower going forward, uh, you know, you want to be investing that cash. And I just think for young people, unless you just have an aversion to debt that's going to make you sick to your stomach if you have it, I don't see the point of giving up that low rate debt, considering that the the rate of inflation right now at 3% over the last 12 months is equal to those mortgage rates for most people. And you're earning more money in T-bills than you were. I mean, you can earn 5.5% in T-bills right now as opposed to paying down that mortgage. Yeah. I would much prefer to let that mortgage stand and and use that leverage now that you know we were given a gift of those low rates back then. I would be in no hurry to pay that off, especially if inflation is going to be higher and rates are going to be higher or whatever going forward. Who knows? I, I just I you could always pay it off later, but I, I think the the compounding effects from being in the stock market over the long term far outweigh the ability to pay it on your mortgage and have it paid off. Yeah, I mean, so that's where you start. It's it, with every with every question. And this was a really popular question, like over the last three years, right? So we start off with uh, there's an optimal versus reasonable scenario. What is optimal is going to be what I give you on the spreadsheet, and what is reasonable is going to be you know how you feel about debt and if you want to be financially free, or when you when you're 45 or if you want to retire. And then think about the difference between you're dumping like in the scenario that I created. If the mortgage was five, if you bought a five hundred thousand dollar house, you put a hundred thousand down and you put an extra 500 bucks a month onto this, onto the note, you'll pay it off in 20 years. Um, but instead of investing that 120 grand into your house, why not put it in the market? Like, look at that scenario. Like, sure, you, f- you free up cash flow, but you know, when you're 45, but then again, like, wouldn't you rather have that larger balance outside with more flexibility? And maybe it's not in a tax deferred account. Maybe this is all in a brokerage account. So we can kind of, you know, knock down the returns a little bit and just for taxes. But but still, it's an optimal versus reasonable scenario, depending on what his goals are, what is what the, what the plan looks like. So, um, that's that's where I end up 
with that one. And then just managing expectations, you know, going back to sequence of returns to be, to be specific. Yeah, you want, I think you want to give yourself as much flexibility as possible if you're if you're looking at something to do in your mid 40s or early 50s or whatever. And so many question marks about this case too. Like he's planning on having, or they, she, or they are planning on having kids. I mean, you have two or three kids. Like they might take all of your extra cash flow anyway. They might all go to daycare. So this conversation is moot. And uh, I mean, when I was 20, when I bought a house at 25, I wasn't thinking that I would be there for 40 years uh, or even 20 years. So. There's a lot of different things that could change. Our house yes, you want to give yourself built, a margin of safety. Are houses even built to last 40 years anymore? I don't even know. That's I don't think so. They discontinued the uh, packages from from Stage, right? Or not Stage, uh, Sears. You can't buy a house and have it <laughs> charted over on a trolley anymore. And it we'll lasts check back in 40 years. Century, yeah. I sure hope so, Duncan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you would hope, but I'm just saying. I, I don't know. I have my doubts. All right. I want to thank Nick for coming on and helping us with some financial planning questions. We appreciate all your questions as usual. Thanks to everyone in the chat for coming on. We had a lot of fire stuff again today. Uh, email us, ask the compound show at gmail.com. Leave us a comment or a question in YouTube. We're getting a lot of questions these days, not only in our inbox, but also on YouTube and Twitter. People yell at Duncan on the street sometimes. Uh, remember, ask the compound show at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time. See you, everyone. See you, guys. for listening to Ask the Compound. All opinions expressed by Ben Carlson, Duncan Hill, and any of their guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.